Okay, we're going to start here on the bottom of Chavdalad Amudbet by the Mishnah. This Mishnah is actually a Mishnah that was discussed heavily in the Gemara and Brachot. It was brought there in the Gemara and Brachot, as well as much of the Gemara that we're going to read here, because it has to do with the davening and the shots going up to daven. It says, Haomer, Yibrauchucha Tovim, Herzu Derech Aminut. Somebody goes up there and says, Bless you, the good ones. That is someone who is off the Derech. That is someone who is... Worshipping Avodah Zarah. Now here we have different interpretations of what this means. Rashi says, Tovim means that only people who are deserving can give you bracha or can bless you, but Rishayim can't bless you. And Rashi says that's just not true, because we saw basically in the Gemara in Tanit, we saw this in Kiritot, the idea that the Tzibor, when it gets together to dive into Hashem, that it has to have all sorts of people in there. It can't just have tzaddikim, it has to have rishayim, it has to have other individuals in the crowd as well. And to say here that only good people can bless you is heresy. That's the way Rashi learns it. Tosafot brings that pshad, then he brings inami. A second pshad, mishum de mechzeh kishtei rishiyot, which is a tovim, is referencing to the god of good. So anyway, this was a common problem in Bavel. It was the local avodah zarah at that time, which involved the good and evil, dark and light, so here is Yerecha Tovim, sounds like, oh, only those people that are on the good side, that are going to the good God, you can daven. But that means it implies that there's another God, the bad God, and that's what the problem is over here. There are others, like the Ran, who suggests Yerecha Tovim means that only people who got benefit from you, Akarish Brachel. People that are your beneficiaries should give you a bracha. But that means people who didn't get that benefit, they shouldn't say a bracha. So again, these are certain types of heresy because none of this is true. So the Gemara will give us the quote later on, which is, just like you were merciful on the birds when we ask you to shoo away the mother bird, so too, Hashem, you should be merciful on us. Over good, we should mention your name. Or modim, modim, person doubles the word modim, in all these cases, if he's a shliach tzibur, we shut him down right away. The Gemara will discuss each one of these as to what the problem is. Someone who says that Arayot are just a nice euphemism, then that is problematic. We said we silence him on that. Now what does that mean? Mechane Arayot Mishatkinoto. So here you have different interpretations. Some like Rashi suggest you interpret it not to be real. I mean that Arayot are totally fine. Uh, what's the problem? That you're not allowed to expose clonavib, clonimo, you're not allowed to expose things that would be embarrassing to your parents. So it uses arayot as a way to give you a sense of what's something that is embarrassing. But it's not really, these are asurim. So that's one way to interpret it. Or, you can see here in the Rebbeinu Hanano, the Rebbeinu Hanano also says, Komar, shukurea pasuk, ervata vicha ve'ervati mecha, ervata viv ve'ervati mo. It changes it from avicha enimecha to aviv ve'imo. So it depersonalizes it a bit. And so there, they're just, they're not really changing the meaning of the Pasuk because they're saying the same thing, but they're changing the way that it's written because they say that's not so nice to write it that way. So they're going to create a euphemism for it. So there, again, what's the problem? The Torah wrote it that way. So if the Torah wrote it that way, we can say it that way. So you're not able to change it. And so therefore, Meshat Kinoto, can we silence him? Haomer, umizarachalo titen la'avir molech. It's not allowed to give you your offspring to take to the avodah of the molech. So don't interpret it to mean lotitain la'abra b'armiyuta. You're not allowed to produce a child with a non-Jewish woman who worships the Molech, because that child will be given to Avodah Zarah, or used in Avodah Zarah. 
There we silence him with an extra rebuke. So here it seems to be that the, the issues are, again, more serious, either because this interpretation is more believable, or because of the ramifications of the statement over here. Now, where it says, Bishlama modim modim, I understand why we silence him when he says modim modim, it's like he's bowing down to two deities. If you say modim once, that's fine. But you say modim modim, looks like you're bowing down to two different powers. That your name should be mentioned on the good. Nami, that's a problem. That means on good we mention your name, but not on the bad. We have a Mishnah in Brachot. Presents to give a bracha for bad, just like they give a bracha for tov. Tov is either shachiano or tov meitiv. Bad is baruch dayana emet. So you need to have a bracha on both to suggest that you only make a bracha on the good. Again, either it suggests that there's two deities here, the good and the bad one, or it says, says that Hashem only has power or shall only be thanked for the good. He shouldn't be thanked for the bad. What's the problem of We have a this. He causes jealousy amongst the creation. Because now it sounds like Hashem is only Mirachem on the birds. What about all the other animals? The other one says, no, you're here, you're making this mitzvah into something that has to do with God's mercy. When that's not the nature of mitzvot. Mitzvot are gzerot. They are decrees from God and you follow them because God said so. Not because God's being merciful, God's doing this. It's because God said so. That's sufficient. So here you have a machlok in the Gemara as to what the reason is that you're not allowed to do this. All right, I'll read a little more and then I'll come back and discuss this in more detail. Someone who went down, meaning that he was going to be the shleach tzibor before Rabbah. Hashem, you had mercy on the kansibor, on the bird and the mother bird that you shoot away. You should have mercy and spare us. So while Rabbi compliments him, says, look, he's such a great dominer. So Abayi, Abayi turns to him, Abayi is a Talmud as well as an adopted son of Rabbi. Did you teach us that you shut him down? That's what the Mishnah says. He wanted to test Abayi, he wanted to sharpen him and see if he caught it on. So Rabbi complimented him, he wanted to see if Abayi would just buy into it and say, okay. Or he would object and bypass the test by objecting and showing that it was a problem. All right, now over here, in terms of what the issue is, so this Gemara actually becomes pivotal in a machloket between the Ramban and the Rambam about the explanation of the reasons for the mitzvot. Both the Rambam and the Ramban agree that one is allowed to look for reasons in the mitzvot and should give explanations for the reasons in the mitzvot. Now it's important to note here, and many Rishonim put this out, that even if you do give reasons for the mitzvot, those don't have a lachic ramification. Which is, Rabbi Shimon and the Gemara does have that. He has it when you give the reason for the mitzvah, that does have a lachic ramification. But the way that we paskin, we say that you're allowed to give reasons for the mitzvot, but that doesn't have a lachic outcomes to it. Meaning that, if you give that explanation, they say, well, I'm exempt in this case, I'm not exempt in that case. That we do not say with regards to the mitzvot. That's the mistake that Shlomo HaMelech said. That these mitzvot don't apply to me because... I'm better than that, I'm smarter than that, and that's what the issue is, and I'm not going to get caught up in it. In the end, he did get caught up in it. So you're not allowed to make statements like that. You're allowed to give reasons, but you can't say that the reason then becomes definitive 
a way to define the mitzvah so much so that then it also affects the halachic outcomes. Now, they both agree about that part. Then, number two is that Ammon gives a reasoning behind Al-Khan Sipur, and then he, more Nebuchim, he quotes this Gemara and says, well, how can I be giving a reason that Hashem is merachem al biot? He brings it down with Otovet Beno as well. When the Gemara clearly here says that that's not the case. She says, well, there are two dayot in the Gemara over here. That's the answer. I'm not holding like the Deo that says that it's a problem. It's a gzera. I'm holding like the other opinion, which says that the problem is matil kinaba briot, but that's still not a problem. You can say it in that manner. You can articulate it in that way, which is that Hashem is merachem al hebriot. Now, the major machloka between the Rambam and the Ramban that derives from this Gemara is that the Rambam makes a statement, which is all mitzvot have reasons to them, but that's true on a global or on a big picture state. But mitzvot also have details associated with them. Those details or those specific things that are unique to a mitzvah or special parts of the mitzvah, those items do not have reasons behind them. And then, enam elag zeirot, as Rashi describes it over here, what does it mean, elag zeirot, amelech, latil aleinu olo, to put his yoke on us, so that we show that we are his servants and we do whatever he says. So therefore, the details of a mitzvah are only to Listen to Hashem and show that we are subservient to Hashem, that we are obedient people and listen to whatever Hashem commands to us. So that's the way the Rambam learns it. The Ramban takes issue the Rambam and says he's wrong, he's completely wrong. Even the details of a mitzvah have reasons behind them. So they both quote this Gemara over here about the nature of Kansipur, that even though Kansipur over here is considered to be something that's Rachamim, we say, no, it's Gzerat HaMelech. But the way that the Ramban interprets that versus the Rambam makes a difference. The Rambam says, means details of a mitzvah are not necessarily reasoned or have reasons to them. They're simply And you do it to be obedient to Hashem. And then the Ramban says, no, even details of a mitzvah have reasons behind them. So what's meant over here that because you don't understand, you misunderstood the mitzvah. You try to explain that the reason for Kansipur is because Hashem has mercy. That's wrong. The reason that Hashem gives us the mitzvah of Kansipur is that we should learn to be merciful. That's what the Gemara means over here. For as far as vis-a-vis Hashem, it's not because Hashem is merciful. That's why He gave us the mitzvah. No, it's gzera. It's Hashem's mitzvah because it's to teach us how to behave. And that's what it means in this Gemara, that we learn that it's gzera. Gzera means vis-a-vis Hashem. But as far as we're concerned, we gain from it and we learn to be merciful from the mitzvah. So therefore, it would be inappropriate to compare and say, oh, Hashem should be merciful like He's merciful on the birds, because that's not what the reason for the mitzvah is. The reason for the mitzvah is to mitzaref, to make sure that we do what's right and make us better people. And that's the reasoning behind the mitzvot. That is a multifaceted machloket here between the Rambam and the Ramban. Other Rishonim weigh in on this issue as well. I'm just giving you the big picture, and I'll try to send those mikorot out when I have a chance. We discuss this again in the, back in the Gemara Brachot when this Gemara was brought up there. So then, next situation or case here is how the Nachi came to Rabbi Chanina. Somebody went down to be the Shlech Tibur before Rabbi Chanina. Amar, Hakel, Agadol, Agibor, Manara, Dir, Vachazak, Vemitz. Oh, I give all these accolades to Hashem. So Amalei, so then Rabbi Chanina turns to him and says, Samtinu, Lishvachi, Demarach, did you finish praising Hashem? Why are you stopping? So he says, Hashtahanit, Vata, these three, which is Akel, Agadol, Agibor, Vanara, Ilav, Dichtvinu, Moshe, Boraita, had Moshe not written down in the Torah, then the Anshek established them as part of the framework of Tefillah. We wouldn't be able to say them. 
And you're going on and on and on? Where do you get the right to do that? This is very similar to the Gemara we saw before. Who's the one who can say all the praises of Hashem? The one who can say all of them, which again is impossible. Since you can't say all the praises, you can't just start, because then it's, Mashal, Adam, Shayulu, Elif, Alfei, Alafim, Dinei, Zahav. person was super wealthy, he had these millions of golden coins. Yeah, this guy has some nice, a lot of silver coins. That would be offensive. That's offensive. So do here. When you're praising Hashem, you can't get all of his praises in. Since you can't get all of his praises in, you shouldn't go down that path at all. Again, this is what we discussed in the previous time that we discussed here in Megillah, this issue of praise has to be paradigmatic praise. I mean, we have to have someone who already said it. Here we have Moshe Rabbeinu, and as Rashi points out, the Anshu Knesset Gdol is Ezra, in the Sefer Nechemiah, says, who the Gemara views Ezra as being part of the Anshu Knesset Gdol. He's the one also, so he codified it in that manner, that that phraseology is permitted to be used because we have a precedent for it. So in order to do this, you need precedence in terms of if you're quoting something, that's fine. If you're quoting a pasuk, or again, I mentioned before the idea that Rav Salavetsky raised with regards to acrostics or using the alphabet Aleph through Tov, because those are things that are self-ending or self-terminating. Since they're self-terminating, it's not as if you finished your praise for Hashem. It's just because you ran out. You ran out of letters. And now that you ran out of letters, you have nothing more to say. But not because you don't have more to say, but just because there's no more letters to keep going. So that way we get around some of this problem of quote-unquote limited praise because there the limitation is not the praise, the limitation is the framework that we're using. So I'm Rabbi Hanina. Everything is in the hands of heaven except for Yirat Shemaim. Pasuk here says that Hashem is asking you to fear Him. So now, if He's asking you to fear Him, nobody asks you to do things you can't do. So it must be that you're able to do this. So it must be that you're in control of your Yirat Shemaim. It says, Sounds like there, oh, just just do the Yira thing. Sounds like it's a little thing, no big deal. Yeah, Bumoshu is speaking over here, he's talking about it being nothing. But, for us, it's a big deal. You go to borrow, you're asking to, for a person for this large utensil, and he has it. For him, it's like, ah, eh, nothing, no problem. Person who has a small cleat, and he doesn't have it, then it seems like gigantic. Meaning that if you go and ask him for a small cleat, and he doesn't even have it, it sounds like this big item that he doesn't have. So Moshe Rabbeinu has Yira. For him, it's a small deal. For us, we don't have Yira. Then it seems like a really big deal. That's how the Gemara explains this. Again, here, this is interesting. I'll just read the Tosafot because this topic is much bigger. We've discussed in other locations as well. But here, Akobi Dei Shemaim Chutz Mirat Shemaim. Tosafot over here asks, what about the fact that the Gemara in other places says, Akobi Dei Shemaim Chutz Mitzinim Upachim. Everything's Bidei Shemaim except for colds and fevers. So what's the difference between these Gemaras? He says, the difference is, Nira Dehachim Ari Vitodot Adam. Over here, it's talking about the character traits of an individual. A person is born with innate character traits or strengths or weaknesses. That comes. That's the nature of the individual that you can't change. But Yirat Shemayim, that's in your own hands. No matter what you're born with or what strengths and weaknesses you're given, Yirat Shemayim is something that you can deal with, something that you can achieve. That's how Tosavot learns it. 
Now, in terms of a call, has to do with a person living their life. The choices and things that happen to them in their life, those things are controlled by Shemaim, except for the fact that getting sick can take preventative measures from becoming ill. Now, tell us about the reason to mention this today is because this is Tuesday's daf, which is Tisha B'Av. And over here, Tosva quotes the Haftorah from Tisha B'Av. He quotes from Yirmiyahu Tet and says, how do I know this? Because how do I know everything is Nigzar Min HaShemayim except for Yirah? Because it says in the Haftorah, last Sukim that we have in the Haftorah for Tisha B'Av, it says, Komar Hashem, Al Yitalel Chacham B'Chachmato, Al Yitalel HaGibor B'Gvruato, Al Yitalel HaShir B'Ashro. person who is wealthy, strong, wise, brilliant, don't take praise in that. You want to take credit for something? Right, put your mind to it and know me. Which is the puzzle that we just quoted. The idea of Yirat Hashem and Alech Bidrachab. That's something that you can take credit for because that's something you accomplished. The other items, those aren't in your hand. Those are things that were granted to you. Those are things that are given to you. And therefore you can't take credit from them. So again, the Haftorah for Tishabav, for the Daf on Tishabav, this is what Tosavot is quoting as the source for the fact of a call. Bidei Shemaim, Chutz Shemaim, has to do with the innate character traits of the individual. Amar Rabbi Zero, Homer Shma Shma, Komer Modim Modim Dami. Someone who doubles up and says Shma Shma is the equivalent of saying Modim Modim. Meiti ve'yakoreta Shma Kofla. Someone who reads Shma and then doubles it up. Harizim Migunet. That is... Not nice. It's disgusting. Okay, it might not be so nice, but we still don't shut him down. Our mission says that we shut him down. So how do I reconcile between these two? That's when he says word by word and repeats them. And the other one is where he says pasuk by pasuk, and he then repeats it. He says the whole pasuk, and then he repeats it. So the way Rashi learns this is that if you repeat each word, that's not so bad. That's disgusting, and he's a fool. But that's the only thing it is. It's not something Although, if you say, according to Rashi, both psukim, you say the puzzle and then repeat the puzzle again, that looks like you're praying to two different gods. You obviously could have read the Gemara the other way around, which is that saying the one word, like modim modim, when you say shma shma, that's problematic. When you say the whole puzzle, and then you repeat the whole puzzle again, that is less significant in that way. So you could have read the opposite of Rashi, but Rashi explains the Gemara in this way. Why don't we entertain the possibility that up front, he didn't have Kavona? The reason he's repeating it is because he wasn't Kavin the first time. You know, this happens to us all the time. We were distracted, something happened, we didn't have proper Kavana, so we want to go over it because... We didn't have Kavana the first time. He says to him, wait a minute. Why is that a question? What are you, like a Chavrusa with Hashem? You, you're on peers? You're on the same level as Hashem? That you can say, oh, I was just talking, but I didn't have Kavana. If you don't have Kavana the first time, you whack him or smash him on the head with the hammer of the blacksmith until you get it right. I mean, this person needs a wake-up call. How can you be standing before Hashem or speaking to Hashem and you kind of just say things flippantly? You don't have kavona. I mean, if you're standing before the president, you're standing before the king, you're going to be very careful about what you say. So, so too, when you stand before Kodesh Baruch you better be very careful about what you're saying and you have to have kavona. And if you don't have kavona, we got to straighten you out quickly. And so basically what he's saying to him is, that seems like an unlikely possibility that he didn't have kavona and he's repeating it because... Person can't daven without kavana. That's just totally inappropriate. Fortunately, today we have a big problem with that, and so much so that the Shulchan Aruch, in quoting this in the Ramah, they speak about these issues, say that 
if you don't have a kavana the first time, it may not be worth to go back the second time. There's no likelihood whatever you did wrong the first time is going to come out the second time as yell, and you're just going to have no kavana the second time. So we're less open to repeating things because we don't think we can be mekavin any time. The explanation of what it means that you use as a euphemism, that you say arayot or a euphemism is that it's talking about embarrassing things about your father, embarrassing things about your mother, but not literally arayot. That's what we said, and we also gave the explanation of Benu Hanano, which is that it changes it to avivimo from avichamimecha. That's the problem over here. Omer umizarachalo diten avir lamolech, tana debe rabishmal, bisrala balakutit, olid mimeno ben lavorizarach. What the mission is talking about is a case where a Jew married a kutit who worships the molech, and they give birth to a child who now they're going to give to Avodah That's what the Pasuk is talking about. That's the explanation that they're giving to the Pasuk. Rashi says the problem with that is that you're going to say now, um, molech and the Torah is a pretty serious thing. You get skila for it, karate for it, bring a chatat for it. So now a person is going to think, if you explain it that way, they're actually going to have halakhic ramifications. They're going to think that it's deserving of the death penalty, or that you have to bring a chatat for this. Situation, which is just not true. Bola Ramid, the person has a child with a non-Jewish woman. It's a malav, it might be a big problem. It doesn't raise to the level of karet, skila, and so on and so forth. So that would be the mistake. According to Rashi, that's what the issue is over here, that misinterpretation. Others suggest that the misinterpretation here is that the fact that you interpret it this way then takes away from the severity or the gravity of the situation of being Mavir the Molech in general. Because people think, oh, it's just about this, it's a euphemism, but they don't miss the main point, which is that you're not allowed to worship the molech. So the mission begins, Maseh Ruvain, Nikra, Velomitar Game. The incident with Ruvain and Bilhah in the Torah is read, but not translated. Maseh Tamar, Nikra, Umitar Game. The incident with Tamar and Yehuda is read and translated. Maseh Egel Rishon, Nikra, Umitar Game. First description of the Chet Egel, meaning the narrative about the Chet Egel, is read and translated. But the Shani, here we're going to see, there's a Machloket Rashi and Tosafot, we'll see in a second about that, but it mostly relates to Aaron's description to Moshe of the Masegel, Nikra Velomitar Game, is read but not translated. Birkat Kohanim, Maseh David Vamnon, Nikraim Velomitar Gamin, Birkat Kohanim and the Maseh David Vamnon are read and not translated. Again, there's a alternative Gears of Loni Grain. As Rashi says over here, Oh, the Amiyaras are not going to understand it because they don't understand Hebrew, so we'll go through it and we won't have it translated for them. We don't have enough Torah from the first parak in Yechezkel, the Maseh Merkava, Yehuda Matir, Yehuda's Matir, and that's the way we pass in because we have it as the Torah for the first day of Shavuot. We don't have a Torah from this parak in Yechezkel which discusses the abominations and the difficulties and the bad things that transpired in Yerushalayim. Again, Minyona Dioma, this daf is Tishabov's daf, and Hodat Yerushalayim is a parak that describes all the terrible things that happened in Yerushalayim that caused Hashem to want to destroy it. We have these different pure mutations. We have a case where you read it and you translate it. There's certain things that are read and not translated. There's certain things that are not read and not translated. And now the Gemara is going to go through each one of them. These items are read and translated. Creation. The story of creation in Parakalif and Breshit is read and translated. Why not? Because people might start asking the questions, what's above, what's below, 
what was before, what was afterwards. Tosafot brings two interpretations of that. Malifni means what was to the east and the west, meaning that the end of the earth on the east side and the end of the earth on the west side, what goes beyond those boundaries. But the other possibility is what was before creation and what's going to be after the world is destroyed or finished. So anyway, these questions, we'll get this in the Gemara Chagiga as well. But these are theological questions which are beyond the pale. And therefore you might think that this type of reading might trigger those types of questions. Kamash that we don't worry about it. Maselot Ushtebinotav, the incident with Lod and his two daughters, Nikraum Targaim. We read it and we translate it. She Telegmar says, Why wouldn't you? Maybe this would be an affront to the honor of Abraham. We don't worry about that. You read it and you translate it. Again, why wouldn't you? Should worry about Yehuda's honor. It's actually a praise to Yehuda because in the end he admits to being wrong. He admits to his sin and that is a tremendous praise to Yehuda. Again, we read it and we translate it. Pshita, why not? We would worry about the kavod of Kalal Yisrael. That's not exactly the finest moment for them. No, it's better to read it. Because in the end they are forgiven for the Chetegel. And therefore, it's a bad incident, but they were forgiven for it, so it's not that bad. Alright, the next two examples here, it looks likely that the girsa was reversed. Rashi seems to have a different girsa. If you look in the Ein Mishpat, Nei Mitzvah, he brings down the alternative girsa that would have been according to Rashi, and I'm going to read it in that way, which is Klalot Ubrachot, the curses and the brachot that are found in the Tochachot, Nikrin Umetargamin. We read it, and we translate it. The Gemara says, Pshito, why wouldn't you read it? So the Gemara says, Ma'udetema, that what we would worry about is that they'll end up doing it. Me'ava and ira means they'll do it for ulterior motives. They'll keep the mitzvot either because of the brachot, because they're excited about all the reward that they're going to get, or they're going to do it out of ira because they're afraid of the klalot. So that's klalot to brachot. We would have thought that, that we don't worry about that. Azarot ve'onshin, the warnings and all the punishments that are found in Torah, Nikrinu mitargamin, we read them and we translate it. Pshita again, why not? Marutema, what would I have thought? Dilma Paiga Datayu, that maybe they would lose their mind over it. They would feel that the trade-off is not worth it. And that since the punishments are so severe, and since it's in all likelihood they're going to get punished, they may have yeush, they may give up and say, listen, there's just way too much here, we're definitely going to get punished. We may as well enjoy this world in Olam because we're going to get punished anyway, so we may as well maximize the benefit before we get punished. So that was what people might come to think. We don't worry about that. The incident between the crown prince Amnon and Tamar's half-sister, Nikra Umitargeim, is read and translated. Also, the incident with Avshalom and the rebellion, Nikra Umitargeim. Again, we read it and we translate it. Again, why not? We'd worry about the kavod of David, because these are David's children, and that that is not a consideration here. The incident in Sefer Shoftim, we read it and we translate it. Pshita, again, why not? Maybe we worry about the kavod of the Shevet Binyamin. That we don't worry about it. The parak in Yechezkel, that let be known 
Yerushalayim and all of its abominations, Nikrao Mitargeim, you can read it and translate it. Umar says, Pshita, why not? That's to oppose the position of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer was an individual who was reading this above Rabbi Eliezer. It seems like he was reading it, either he was reading it as a half Torah, or he was reading it and kind of denigrating Yerushalayim. So Amar Lo, turns to him and says, Before you check out all the bad stuff and the, the abominations of Yerushalayim, Go and check out your mother's vicious past. They checked after him, and they started to find that there was some suspicious lineage or activity with regards to his family or his mother's side. So Rabbi Eliezer felt that this person who was so willing to either easily or nonchalantly talk about Yerushalayim and all the bad things that happened in Yerushalayim was indicative of the fact that this person himself must have had something wrong with him, and that's why he felt a kinship to discussing those items about Yerushalayim. Those are examples of all those items that are read and translated. Now here are a list of items that are read and not translated. Like in our Mishnah, the incident with Ruvain and Bilha. We read it, but we don't translate it. He went to Kabul, and he was reading He said to the Maturgaman, the translator, only translate the latter half. That's And the Chachamim praised him. The Pasuk is a Pasuk that's split in half. It has a Pasuk, a Pasuk. So what he was saying to him is, don't translate the part about Ruvain, but translate the part about Klal Yisrael, about Yaakov Avinu, and the lineage that is brought afterwards, basically enumerating all the Shvatim and their progeny. So now, Shibchu Chachamim, and the Chachamim praised him for doing that, meaning not translating the part about Ruvain, which was the negative part, but translating the other half, the Pasuk, which was not relevant or is positive. The second incident of the Evo is read, but not translated. What is the Egel So It's the statement that Moshe makes to Aaron and says, Moshe says, what did the people do to you that made you do such a thing? Moshe saw that the people had gone wild and lost their control. Over here, the question is, why don't we read it? Rashi claims that we don't read it because Aaron makes a claim over there, and this is what the Gemara is going to say in a second. I threw it into the fire, and all of a sudden this eagle popped out of there. So that makes it sound like there's some power to the Avodah Zarah, or there's something real about the Avodah Zarah. So Rashi says that's what the issue is, and that's why we don't translate it. On the other hand, Tosafot suggests that the problem here is Kvod Aaron, that it's not so nice for Aaron because the second incident of the eagle, or the second narrative of the eagle, really implicates Aaron much more so than the first incident. And therefore, the Kvod Aaron, we don't read the second Egel. We read it, but we don't translate the second Ma'aseh HaEgel. A person should also be careful when he answers a question. When Aaron was trying to explain to Moshe what had transpired, that caused all these questioners to gain a foothold. All those over the Avodah Zarah, the Hefker, don't follow the Torah, now find a foothold in this by the fact that he says, I threw it into the fire and out came this Egel by itself, as if it has some sort of powers. So that was support for Avodah Zarah. And you have to be careful of how you answer, because people might misinterpret that which you said.
Yeah, but all the places that we talk about not translating, we're talking about someone who took an active stance, did something that was wrong, and therefore either to protect their kavod, or, you know, we don't want to discuss that issue, so then we don't translate it. But over here by Dina, she's really a passive character in the story, and there's nothing really to say that Mishum kavodo shel Yaakov, Mishum kavodo shel Dina, it's really, it's an unfortunate incident, but it wasn't they who were involved. Like with Yehuda and Tamar, Yehuda was actively involved in the incident. Ruvain and Bilah, Ruvain is actively involved. Same thing with Abnon, Abshalom, they're all actively involved. In those instances, then we question whether we should protect or we should cover up the kavod in order to preserve the dignity of those individuals. Over here by Dina, she did nothing wrong. So in a sense, she's a passive character, and I think that's why the Gemara doesn't even entertain the possibility of not reading or translating that incident. That's a good question. We're not trying to stop people from questioning. I think that here we're talking about the Hamonam. We're talking about people who are not necessarily going to come and ask the questions. They're listening to a translation. And in listening to a translation, they might make their own conclusions. And in making their own conclusions, then we come to the wrong conclusion. I think within the confines of a classroom or a confines of a situation in which people can have the questions and then be answered, then it's fine. The problem here is that this is out in a public forum where not everybody's going to ask the questions. They're just going to hear this information and they're going to draw conclusions and probably draw the incorrect conclusions from it. So in those situations, we don't just make a public open statement which can be misinterpreted or misunderstood. Again, within a finite group or within a context of learning, I think that we would discuss it and that we'll get to in the Gemara Chagiga where in certain parts of the Torah or certain parts of Tanakh, where we only teach in very small groups or on one-on-one in order to ensure the person understands it and make sure that there are no questions or things left out. So there is an idea of asking questions, teaching, and allowing this information to be disseminated, but it has to be done in a controlled fashion, not in this manner where it's just a public forum. There were serious reservations about translating the Gemara and opening up the Gemara to the Hamonam. There were serious reservations about it. I think in the end they say, I think that was the conclusion in the end, that which was that we were going to lose a generation of people being able to understand the Gemara. There is a risk in translating the Gemara and opening it up to the public without a proper teacher in hand. And there are risks involved in that. And then you have to weigh that risk versus the benefits of translating the Gemara. And I think that was the threshold, meaning that the crossroads, they went and asked before art school read out their Gemaras and translated them, they went to all the Gdolim. They went to Rav Shach, they went to many of the other Gdolim, and they all encouraged them to do it because they felt it had already reached a point where Gemara wasn't going to be learnt unless they started to translate. It wasn't going to be open to other people, but there are risks. And you're right, that when you translate things and allow people to read things and go on their own, there are risks with that. I think that they try to control some of those risks by putting in footnotes and explanations that help to understand these things. But you're right, there are risks when you translate. It's a difficult balance that has to be struck. Right, the Gemara does not give you the reason behind each one of the Kamash Malans. I think the Gemara is working the other way around, which is the, the Bright is saying that we read and we translate them, and the Gemara has to figure out why would you have thought not to read them. The Gemara's assumption is that there's no reason not to read them. So now the Gemara is trying to back into it and say, okay, why would you have thought maybe not to read them? So they think it's obvious why you would read them. The only question is, why would the Bright have to present that to you? So I think that's why they don't explain the Kamash Malan in each of these instances. All right. Birkat Kohanim, Nikrin, Velo Metargamin. When it comes to Birkat Kohanim, we read it, but we do not translate it. My time, Mishum Isa. Because the beginning, the opening line of the third Pasuk is Isa, which means that Hashem will favor you. 
which makes it sound like Hashem favors B'nai Yisrael, number one. Number two is that that favoritism might make people either question why is it that Hashem favors B'nai Yisrael, which the Gemara discusses in other places why that is, or it might make them feel like, okay, we don't have to do so much because Hashem's going to take care of us anyway. So we don't want to translate that because of the misrepresentations or misinterpretations that can come from it, and therefore we don't translate Birkat Kohanim. Now the Mishnah says, Mazet Tavid V'amnon, Lo Nikrim V'lo Metargamin. We had the case from Maseh David V'amnon that is not read and not translated, or again the Girsa that we have is Nikrin V'lo Metargamin, that's what we have in our Mishnah. V'amart, what is the Maseh Amnon V'david? Well isn't that synonymous with the Maseh Amnon V'tamar? Isn't that the incident between Amnon and Tamar? And we just said before, Nikra Umitar game, that we do read it and we do translate it. The Maseh says, Lokasha, Hadichtiv Amnon Ben David, Hadichtiv Amnon Stama. Depends how his name is presented. If his name is presented Amnon by itself, then we translate it. If his name is presented as Amnon Ben David, then we avoid translating it because that actually raises the issue that we mentioned before. Let's worry about Yikari the David. Let's worry about the Kavod of David. So if David's name is mentioned, then it is an issue in terms of Kavod of David. So if it's unknown Ben David, we don't translate it. But if it's unknown Stama, then we will translate it. Right. So any time in the Torah where something's written that is very negative, we read it in a more positive light. It doesn't mean that it's something that is negative. We read it now as a positive, but rather we read it as less negative. I would say, in other words, a euphemism of sort, but it's not really a euphemism because the word itself means the same thing. But the word that the Torah uses is much more explicit. And in order to avoid that graphic description, we change the word to something else which is less graphic, even though it means the same thing. And so here the Gemara is going to give us examples. They're all what we call kreinktiv, which is the word itself is written in the Torah or in the Navi, but the kri, what we read, is different. So two of them appear in the Tochacha and Sefer Dvarim and Parsha Kitavo. Over there it says, Ishgalena. Ishgalena means to sleep with, to have relations with. But again, it's a more explicit graphic word. We change it and read it, Ishkavena, which is a more polite and less graphic way of describing it. Ba'afolim, which is what's written there, we translate that, or we read it instead as Uvetchorim. So rather than reading the more graphic word of Afolim, we read Tchorim, which seems to be, originally it means, Afolim means your posterior, whereas Tchorim means hemorrhoids. So they read it again in a lighter or less graphic form. So now, here the Gemara continues to discuss this and brings examples from Melachim Bet, where we have three instances where they have a word and then they translate it differently, which is Chayonim. Instead of reading it as Chayonim, we read it as Divyonim. So Chayonim is the dove dung, whereas Divyonim are decayed leaves. There it's describing the incident where a city in the Shomron is under siege from Aram, and it's one of the Haftarot that we read. Elisha says tomorrow everything is going to be gone, and we're going to have plentiful food, and the prices are going to drop, and the Arba Mitzorayim, that we read as a Haftarot. So over there it says that when the siege is on, that there's no food, that Haryonim, Dove Dung, is going for a high price, because that's the only thing they have to eat. It's expensive because that's what they have to eat. So again, the less graphic terminology is that you div your name, which is like this decayed leaves. I mean, it's disgusting, but not as disgusting, not as graphic. All right, then we have the next pasuk, which is right here, which is, et shinehem. 
So that means they, they're going to eat their excrement and drink their urine. Which comes from Rav Shakir's speech when Ashur is laying siege to Yushalayim in the time of Chizkiyahu HaMelech. So Chorehem and Shinehem, again, are more graphic words. We change it and we read it as Lecholet Tzoatam, Vlishtot and Memei Reglehem. Tzoa and Memei Reglehem also mean excrement and urine, but they are more polite, euphemistic ways of saying it, and therefore we use that type of terminology over there. And then the next instance is in Melachim Bet as well, which is the Merchaot. Instead of making the Merchaot, we change it to the Motzaot. This is the case where Yehu is leading the rebellion against Achav and his family, and now he's going to wipe out all the Ovdei Abal, and he turned the pillar of the Baal and the house of the Baal, he destroys it and turns it into Merchot, which is like a privy. He turns it into a bathroom. So again, they said of saying it a privy, they called the Motzot like an outhouse. So they, again, translate it, and we read it in a way that is a little more euphemistic and not as graphic or explicit. Right now, the Gemara continues and says, Rabbi Shur ben Karchomer, the Merchot Kishman. The word Merchot, you can read it as it's written. Because there it's describing a denigration of a Vodazarat. It's talking about the Baal, they tra- changed it into a privy, they changed it into a bathroom. So that's fine to speak about. Any joking around or humor is improper, except for making fun of Zara, which is permissible, because here we quote from Yeshayahu, which is, Karabel, Bel, meaning the god, Karab, bow down, Parase Nevo, and Nevo stoops over, Uchtev, in the next pasuk after it says, Karsu, Karu, they stooped over, they bow down, Yachtav together, Velo Yachlu, Malet Masa, and they were unable to deliver the burden. So here I see the Psukim making fun of the Avodah From that, that's our cue that we're allowed to make fun of and joke around about the Avodah Zarah. We can learn out of this instance by Hosea, which says the Eglot Beit Aven, the calves of Beit Aven, Yaguru, Shran Shomron. The people of the Shomron, the dwellers of the Shomron, will be shaking, will be trembling. Ki avalalav amo. They are now in mourning over the fact. Uchmarav alav yagilu. The priest that used to rejoice over them, Alkvodo, and gave honor to it. Ki galami menu, because it's been sent into Galut, it's been removed. Altikrak vodo. Don't call it the honor. Elik vedo, the burden. The burden of the agalim, which is, again, a vodazara. So here another time where they're poking fun or denigrating the Avodah Zarah and the Pasuk, which gives us a cue again that we're allowed to denigrate the Avodah Zarah. Amravuna bar Manoach mishmeid rav acha breid rav ika shari le the bar Yisrael meimar le the oved kochavim shakle the oved kochavim anche b'shin tov shelo. He says permissible for a Jew to say to someone who worships Avodah Zarah, take your Avodah Zarah and stick it in your shin tov, which is a again terminology. Rashi over here says lashon v'ch. Even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Mitzrayim. The word sheit is a euphemistic term for one's backside. So it's again, it's something that's negative, something that's disgusting, that you're allowed to make fun of them in that way. Someone who has negative Rumors circulating about them that they are involved in illicit relationships. Charle de Bzuye, one can again make fun of them, embarrass them, denigrate them with Gimel Shin. So here Rashi gives two interpretations of what Gimel Shin is. It seems to be that may have been instead of Gimel Shin, it might have been Bet Gimel, 
Rashi says, Bargirta, you can call him the son of a harlot. So you're not only permitted to make fun of him, but even his mother. The other possibility Rashi brings down is Rabatai Mifashim. My Rebbeim explained it as Giyufa, which means an adulterer. And Shaita means from Shin is a fool or a madman. So that's what it means, Begimoshin. Adulterer and madman, adulterer and crazy man. You're allowed to make poke fun of them. You're allowed to give them nicknames that are denigrating. Haiman de Shapir Shomane, someone who has positive rumors circulating about them. Sharlish Bechuchay, then you can give praise to them. Oman de Shabchay, the one who praises them. Enuchulo Brachot Arosho. He should have blessings that come upon his head, meaning that if this is someone who positive rumors circulate about, then you should also speak positively and properly about them, and that person will be given a bracha for the fact that they are giving blessings to others. Now, in general, about these ideas of rumors, obviously we have to be careful about rumors, but the general principle about these ideas is people tell stories about great gedolim. They tell stories about what is the Chavitz Chaim, Others, Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach, in our generation, they tell, Rav Moshe Feinstein, they tell these unbelievable stories about them. Now, the, the question of whether they're true or not true, or whether they've been enhanced or embellished, but the fact that people tell these stories about these individuals already indicates the nature of the character of these individuals. So the fact that people are saying these things, true or not, already indicates the nature of the individual. And the same is true on the opposite, on the negative side. I mean, if people are telling these awful stories or de- these terrible stories about an individual, then, again, the fact that they are telling these stories about the individual already brings up the question about the character of the individual. But it's in a case where it's obvious that whether the stories of praise or the stories of negativity are plentiful, are well-known, and are substantiated in some way, to the fact that a person would then be permitted to be negative towards those that the negative things are associated with and positive towards those that have the positive stories associated with them. The Rabbeinu Yonah in Basachar Avot says that the requirement of Dan Kafschut only applies to a Benoni. It only applies to someone who is in the middle ground. A person who is known as Sadiq, or is well known as a Sadiq, then you have to assume that they did the right thing, and it's not a question of down the kafzchut, it is assumed to be the kafzchut. Someone who's a rasha doesn't have that schut to be granted down the kafzchut. That's foolish to assume that someone is always doing the wrong bad thing or wrong thing is right. So over here, I think when the Gemara talks about these negative rumors, I don't think they're just rumors. I think these are more substantiated. This is a person with a history or checkered past already has these negative things are circulating about them. And I think the idea of the disparaging remarks or denigrating remarks regardless to them are a way to separate and to say we don't we don't act like these people. We don't want to be associated with these people. And I think that's their way of dividing or separating from these individuals and showing that whatever they're doing is not considered to be within the fold or proper. And so I think that's what's being spoken about over here. All right, with that we complete the third parak, again, which is the fourth parak in the Mishnayot, which is the completion of the parak. Now we're going to read the final parak in the Masechta, which is really the third parak in the Mishnayot. So, Hadron Allah, Hakoreh, Megillah, Umeit. Okay, we're going to stop over here.